This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. A little, uh, hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy, slight technical glitch right at the start, but we're rolling on now because first a big thank you to our fishy friends from Radio Marinara for the last hour of their aquatic awesomeness. I look forward very much to having your company through to 11 o'clock on this beautiful Melbourne morning. And it may be Sunday morning, but it hasn't stopped some of Melbourne's finest brains from leaping out of bed to join me here in the studio, starting with our resident psychologist, guru on all matters of mind, body and soul, Rainbow Doc. Hi, Rainbow. Nice to Hello. I've decided in my next life, I want to be the dive reporter on Radio Marinara. Doesn't it sound a great gig? Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that a heavenly gig to just be travelling around the world? Well, you know, I'm assuming this is what they do. Travel around the world in various caves and deep, wet places and, and, and reporting in on a Sunday morning. Yeah, to did you know she said it was 13 degrees in the water and she had a dry suit? That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I'd have to do it in the tropics somewhere. That's living. <laughs> well, sitting next to Rainbow, we have a woman who is as deep in knowledge and wisdom as she is deep in voice. Our resident psychotherapist, Prudence Deer. Prudence. <laughs> Hi, Lovely Dr. To see Nick. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've got a little bit of a chesty cold today, so my voice is probably going to be even deeper. So you're even How more radio. Yes. Well, lovely to have you back. Thank it's you great to be back. Thank you. And prizing herself away from her studies, we have our very own medical <laughs> student, Misdiagnosis. Welcome. Actually, how long is it before we have to call you Dr. Misdiagnosis? Uh, Dr. Misdiagnosis. <laughs> I, I think that's... Um, I actually don't know officially when I get the title itself, but I'll, I'll graduate in November this year. Well, not long now. Yeah. Right, well. I, I love how you say um, leaping out of bed. I think 10 o'clock's sort of the best I can manage on a Sunday, realistically. <laughs> well, I, don't, I think 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning counts as leaping, so well done. And of course, we mustn't forget the most important man in the room, the man who makes it all happen behind the scenes, Pam Beater. Thank you for being here, as always, keeping an eye on us. So we've got a packed show today. We'll be talking about everything from Parkinson's disease to erectile dysfunction, sleep apnea, something for everyone. And all that and more is coming up right after this. Doctor, doctor, give me the news I got So welcome back to Radiotherapy at five past ten on Sunday morning. You're listening to Triple R, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit of news here. Um, Prudence, you've, um, you've you've been talking yeah. to me about something which I don't understand at all. Poppers. Poppers. Yeah, well, what, something I heard about They sound about like someone's grandparents. I mean, what, yeah, well, what, maybe that, or, or is it? You know, those funny little kind of look like wine bottle things that you have a string on the bottom and you pull the, pull the string and the streamers fly out when you're about a party. I suspect but you're talking about something else. Yeah, I'm talking about, I am talking about something else. And it, the reason this was in the news, so, so this is, um, uh, was that there's been a, uh, um, uh, some work by the, tra- the, the Therapeutic Goods um, Administration, which is the sort of body in this country that regulates sort of pharmaceuticals and other medical sort of products. And um, uh, they've been um, looking at these things called pop and now what is what is a popper well um 
this is actually a, a group of sort of substances that are rather sort of solvent-like. So they're, they're little liquids. They're liquids that you can, and, and many people actually sniff. And you can buy them in adult shops, and they come under various names, um, one of which is leather cleaner. Um, so you can pop into your local adult shop and ask for a bottle of leather cleaner, and they'll give you a little thing that looks like, um, looks like a bottle of, uh, uh, of essential oils. It's a small little brown bottle. I'm, but not anyway. sh- I'm not sure when I want to renovate no. my upholstery. I would think yeah. of going to an adult shop. No, for the exactly. Mm. Depends what kind of leather you're trying mm. to clean, I guess. Well, Good point, Mr. Yeah, well, some people may well have some very nice collections of leather. Um, but anyway, these, are, uh, these substances are sort of like uh, um, amyl nitrate, which is, a, which is a substance which has been used a lot um, in the past for treating sort of coronary artery cut diseases, yeah. where people get angina and they, they would sniff this, um, this highly volatile liquid and it improves the blood flow to their heart. Now, it also has some other effects um, in that it relaxes smooth muscle throughout the body. And the reason that this is so popular is because there's a lot of smooth muscle in your gut and actually it just makes having anal intercourse much more easy and um you know less uncomfortable apparently so um it's very popular amongst um amongst many people in our community and um it's actually quite a safe sort of substance by and large so it's a bit questionable as to why the tga sort of decided they should start regulating this and there's been they, they were attempting to take it off kind of you know be, being available in in shops and actually putting it on prescription and interestingly there was quite a sort of backlash from um particularly the sort of the um the, the the gay community and the sort of msm community and so on um to push back on the sort of regulation of of poppers so amazingly actually it will become though a pharmacy only medicine so there's so many questions swirling in my mind <laughs> why we're talking about anal intercourse at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Why wouldn't but, you? Well, uh, it, but I'm, I'm, I'm slightly astonished this stuff has been around for a very long time. I mean, yeah. I am familiar with <clears throat> nitrites for, for yeah. treating cardiac disease being around forever. Why suddenly has the TGA taken notice well, of these things? Well, it's a really good question because it's not a particularly sort of hazardous substance. I mean, there are, it's, it's because it's not kind of regulated, I suppose, you're not exactly sure what's in them. So there's a number of different chemicals that can be in those products, some of which have been found to cause sort of problems, especially like with some rare kind of eye conditions. So it can lead to, you know, reduction in vision and so on. But the sort of the standard one that have been used for cardiac stuff has, you know, it's about as safe as you'll probably ever get. So And is it actually any good for cleaning leather i haven't tried it yet <laughs> no one ever gets <laughs> leather with this stuff i can just <laughs> imagine people safe. coming to see me doctor i now need a prescription for my leather cleaner well yeah i mean that's the problem actually uh, in regulating this as well i mean people would would have had to go to the doctor to get a mm. prescription how many doctors are going to be happy to do that and what's the risk that people are going to find something else that could be more much more hazardous to to sniff and use in this way well it will be found it will yeah, be but they'll, just, they'll just go and find something else. That's right. They'll go to Bunnings and find that there's something that you know you use for your car cleaner or something. But to be clear, it hasn't that. been regulated as yet. Is that no, correct? it's going to be later this year. Um, mm-hmm. um, but it will become a pharmacy-only um, medicine. So you'll have to go and see a pharmacist for it. Well, stay tuned to Radiotherapy for more about the ease of access to things to ease your anal intercourse. We'll move on from that misdiagnosis. Um, you're talking about socks for some reason on a Sunday morning. Yes, yes. Uh, nothing to do with anal intercourse this time. Um, so we're talking about Crazy Socks for Docs, um, which right. is um, was a, a program that was designed by Dr. Jeff, uh, who has actually a fantastic surname. His surname is Too Good, and uh, he designed this um, this awareness campaign called um, called Crazy Socks for Docs. 
And the idea behind it is to help normalise conversations around mental health, depression and anxiety amongst healthcare professionals. Ah, so it should be socks for crazy docs. Yeah, I mean, that could be a different way, but that maybe doesn't reduce the stigma if that's how we label it. So I think uh, Dr Toogood had a a good idea with with his labelling. So um, so that's always the first Friday in June of the year. So that was the 7th of June. um, So not the most recent Friday, Friday before that. Um, And the idea is just that um, on that particular day, the 7th of June this year, um, doctors all wore socks of different colours and different patterns to, um, yeah, sort of start conversations and normalise conversations around mental health within the hospital. Um, And because, you know, some of the studies have shown, especially there was a 2011 British Medical Journal paper that reported that a third of doctors have a mental health disorder. A third? In that particular paper. And whether that's depression or anxiety or or something with a different label, it's still, you know, a, a really high amount. And there are lots of different... Um, sort of ideas around where this comes from, whether this is a burnout question or whether this is um, around what they call moral injury, which is this this sense that when we go into medical school, we you know we want to do a really good job and we want to help patients and we want to do the best that we can. But the systemic pressures of the environments in which we're placed and the time constraints and financial constraints often mean that what we wish we could do for people, uh, we just can't. And maybe some of these. Uh, mental health issues are coming from this particular moral injury. I mean, to me, I I think it's a really lovely idea, but um, I really hope that we're not trying to address this systemic uh, problem of mental health within medical practitioners with one day in which we wear some colourful socks. And I'm guessing that one of the reasons this is important is because there's a stigma around all mental health, but for for medical practitioners particularly, I think there's a reluctance to come forward and admit to having a problem for fear that that may jeopardise their career progression. Absolutely, and with the issues around mandatory reporting as well within the profession, um, I think it's very scary for a lot of people. And I mean, I think this is, you know, a sort of a step in the right direction with Crazy Socks for Docs. But I mean, I really hope this is just the beginning of the conversation around it, and that we don't continue to address this issue with one day in which we wear colourful socks. <laughs> it's it's a nice idea, though, isn't it, to have a, a sort of catchy way of raising att- awareness and attention to this? Do you know whether it goes beyond that? Is there anything that this is linked to in terms of programs or any other push to get some help for people so i went on the crazy socks for docs um website to have a look for some of this stuff and at the moment it's an awareness raising campaign i think they i think they're looking at raising some money as well um but scrolling through the page and and i have to admit i didn't go very thoroughly through the page itself but at the bottom there was just a link to lifeline and um, a link to a sort of doctor's help page so i think what that shows me is not that the crazy socks for docs isn't doing anything but that there aren't actually a lot of um a lot of resources that medical professionals can um access easily i think at this stage crucial Mm. point though isn't it that uh, very high risk of uh, of mental health issues amongst medical um, professionals and so raising awareness a good starting point thank you for bringing that up um we'll be talking a little bit more we'll be coming back to talk to rainbow about parkinson's disease after these messages you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia Dr Nick with Rainbow Doc Prudence Deer and Misdiagnosis on Radiotherapy. Um, and Rainbow, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, your previous work and studies and interest in Parkinson's disease. What's, what's up? What's the latest? It's great. You know, anyone who has interest in Parkinson's, whether it's because they work in the area or they have friends or family with Parkinson's, it's always great to see in the newspapers something about 
Parkinson's, particularly if it relates to research. And this week, uh, up at Melbourne Uni, um, the Flory Institute um, released uh, details of their study using a uh, administering a copper compound to people with Parkinson's, and finding that um, they are able, they have been able to in this in this trial. Um, the first human trial in the work that they've been doing um, with this particular compound that I think has been going on for 15 years. Um, They found that um, they were able to improve the symptoms and stop the progressions of Parkinson's disease. Well, that's very exciting news for people who are maybe not so familiar. Let's go back to the start. Can you just explain briefly what Parkinson's disease actually is? Parkinson's disease is um, a progressive degenerative condition that affects the nervous system, central nervous system. The symptoms, the, 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 the main symptoms are bradykinesia, which is slow movements, um, stiffness and tremor. And most people think of Parkinson's as the shakes, if you want, um, uh, normally unilateral, just one side of the body. But in fact, about 30% of people that have Parkinson's don't have a tremor. So it causes quite hard to diagnose. Yeah, I remember a patient of mine was, came to me and he said, my friends say I'm walking like a robot yeah. because he'd lost the arm swing. Didn't yeah. have a tremor at all, but that was the first indication. The arm yeah. swing and sometimes, you know, because it affects movement, it affects all muscle movements. And sometimes the first thing that people become aware of are changes in the expressions in the face because we have an awful lot of muscles in our faces. Um, often people are diagnosed, they, they spend a lot of, lot of time and money at an osteopath or a physiotherapist trying to treat a muscle problem, stiffness that won't go away. It's resistant to treatment that way. Um, the only way to really diagnose it is um, if it responds to medication. Yeah. Um, so, and, and can you just give us an indication? I mean, is this young or old, and what sort of numbers? One um, percent over the age of sixty, one percent of the population, one to two um, generally. Uh, about half of the people with Parkinson's are diagnosed under the age of sixty. It tends to be until Michael J. Fox had Parkinson's disease. It tended to be seen as an old person's condition. Um, when in fact, you know, if it's one in one in sixty, it means um, at least half the people that are diagnosed with Parkinson's are still of working age. Yeah, Michael J. Fox. So that was the Back to the Future, wasn't it? it was that's, that's right. Sort of, yes. That's right. Um, so, for you know, what interests me as a psychologist, um, and I work with um, people with Parkinson's. Not an awful lot because actually the psychological part of the condition is sort of way down the list of the things that you need to to consider and, and work with if you have Parkinson's. So, for instance, it, it affects your gait. So there might be a physiotherapist involved. It can affect your it affects your speech. So there might be a speech therapist involved. There's going to be a neurologist. It's going to be a GP. There's a whole range of of um, uh, treatments that you might be looking for to try and make living with Parkinson's more um, 
more, I was going to say pleasant, um, to, <laughs> make, just, to it, make it easier. It's an unpleasant disease, isn't it? And the drugs are not particularly pleasant. And we do, in the medical profession, certainly I'm fascinated to hear what you say because I've, in all the people I know with Parkinson's, exactly that. We're focusing on the medication. We're focusing on those physical treatments. And I've never really properly thought about what the psychosocial impacts of this disease are. And it must be, for some people, devastating. Yeah. Um, you know, some years ago now, when I was doing my research in this area, I'd be trotting my research around at various conferences, Parkinson's conferences, and um, there weren't any other psychologists. There were, might be a few social workers. I think we're more onto this now than we were back then. But the emphasis, and you understand why, is always on finding a cure for conditions which is great and that money gets put into this but while that's happening there are a whole load of people that are are, are living with a condition and finding it hard and this um um what happens with parkinson's because it is not that well understood and there's a plethora of kind of symptoms that um if you if you hear that someone has parkinson's you you might acknowledge that and be and want to be supportive but actually not know how you can be supportive and what happens is certainly for for younger people people still in the workforce friends and family try and try and help and try and assist but often the things that they're doing aren't helping people with parkinson's talk about becoming invisible Okay. It's assumed that, that they can't do things anymore when, in fact, there are things that they can do and others that they can't. Does that make sense? Does this also partly come from... I, I'm just thinking back to one of my geriatrics placements that I had where there was a, a patient there who had Parkinson's disease and she had, as you described, um, what they called a, a mask-like facies, which is where the muscles in the face are not as responsive anymore. And I think it was very distressing for her family that she in some ways couldn't really show emotion. She couldn't show when she was upset or happy in the same way that the rest of us could. And do you think that there's some sense that because the um, emotional reactions of, of some people with advanced Parkinson's is really difficult to gauge, people assume that they that they you know they can't do anything. That's ex- that's exactly right. And therefore, unless unless we ask people with Parkinson's, you know, how can I help, or, or the person with the diagnosis is able to take control in some way of the part that they can control, because. Um, uh, you know with Parkinson's we don't no one ever knows how it's going to progress you know people have a variety of symptoms and there's no there's no path you can't be told you know this is how things are going to be in three years time or five years time you 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 know it's not possible so there's lots and lots of question marks around what is likely to happen which leads to a very high level of anxiety in people with Parkinson's and if you um put that together with the idea you know um people with parkinson's sometimes uh are concerned that people think they're drunk yes because of their movements um or because they 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 may not be expressing you know they 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 may not be able to express um with their face what's going on there is a sense of being ignored or treated in a way um that they, they they don't feel able to uh, I guess stand, advocate for themselves 
Um, there's high levels of depression. Depression is one of the symptoms in Parkinson's. And, of course, there's also the depression that comes from having, often having a progressive illness. Your, your point is terribly important about people being kind of ignored or overlooked because they have some disease or symptom that people don't understand. A friend of mine recently busted his ankle, had to be pushed around in a wheelchair, and I asked him about it. I said, what was that like? And said, Cognitively, he was completely intact. He had a broken ankle. But he said people would say to the person pushing the wheelchair, oh, does he need this or does he need that? As if he no longer existed because he was in the wheelchair. And it sounds so people with Parkinson's sometimes experience the same Reaction. That's exactly right. And I've, you know, here, met people who have, for instance, they're still working and they get they get sort of passed over for that um, that particular job, that particular project. It's assumed that they're not able to to do certain things without ever being consulted, without ever being asked about it. And the drugs we've had up to now are pretty crude. They act on the basal cell ganglia the base of the brain they affect things like dopamine and stuff like that and some of the newer drugs even cause some horrible side effects with sort of compulsive behaviors gambling or i actually have one patient who um, was a church minister who was put on one of the newer drugs and he became very powerfully sexually motivated in a way that he hadn't been for years and he found it incredibly distressing and this was a side effect of the drug so they're very difficult medications for some people there's now hope through the research at the Florey Institute with this copper tell me about that what what do we think this is doing and what might well, be not, the future they then there's a a lot more research that needs to be done into it and this this brings a question you know when you open the paper and you see you know often the headline is yes, something like cure for yes. but it is early days you know we want to be optimistic we want to support this research it's fantastic that it's happening but for people with parkinson's you know they just want it to hurry up yeah yeah when you i, I just reminded of um something that happened to me at a conference when you're talking about the um the side effects of some of the medications i was at this conference and it was a conference there were a lot of people there with with parkinson's as well as people working in the field and sitting in this big hall waiting for the next um person next next session and um i was sitting in this seat kind of near an aisle and someone came to to push you know to pass me to go into the aisle and as they passed um as they passed me they sat on my lap and put their arms around me and I went, whoa. And then for the moment, there was this, I saw them suddenly go, oh, my God, what am I doing? And said, oh, sorry, I've got Parkinson's. <laughs> <laughs> it was this moment of loss of inhibition. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which is, is quite a common thing. They moved and, and sat down. Right? That was my Parkinson's conference moment. Well, you've certainly opened my eyes as a medical practitioner because exactly as you described at the start, the focus tending to be on the medical, the medication and the physical and the therapies and and being unaware of the, the psychological impacts. So that's been, certainly from my personal perspective, very helpful and very enlightening. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Um, We're going to go to a break in a minute, but the astute listener will be aware that June the 16th is Bloomsday, the day that uh, James Joyce, the famous Australian... Australian... (laughs) 
I've repatriated him. <laughs> the, the Irish writer. This is the day that he set his masterpiece, Ulysses. Um, and for those that are unfamiliar with it, it's a huge book. It's over 750 pages, and it describes <laughs> one day in the life of this guy, Leopold Bloom, as he wanders around Dublin. Uh, and it's been described as the finest work of English literature of the 20th century. It's either that or, for most people, it's a load of incomprehensible bollocks. Uh, but it is, uh, it is a book that is uh, celebrated every June the 16th. So today... I just want to touch on this because I love this book. And one of the more accessible chapters, Chapter 4, Calypso, uh, which is where um, we, we meet Mr. Bloom. Uh, and it starts off, the first line is, Mr. Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowls. And it goes on to say that uh, most of all, he liked grilled mutton kidneys, which gave to his palate a fine tang of faintly scented urine. And it's, uh, this is full of excitement in this chapter because he goes to the butcher's shop to buy his kidney. And when he's finally given the kidney by the butcher, the line is, his hand accepted the moist tender gland and slipped it into a side pocket. Now, that to me is poetry. So in, <laughs> in honour of James Joyce and Bloomsday and Ireland, we're going to have a track from an Irish band, The Cause. <clears throat> We are going to have a track from the Irish band The Cause when the panel decides to behave itself. But I uh, think it's a vegan protest. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you read that bit out because of, of Ulysses, the only bit, and I would have said to you earlier, was I remember that description of the kidneys. The, the kidney. kidneys. I just, I just so, think it's oh. such a marvellous line. OK, let's, let's see if we can find The Cause. Um, you're here on Triple R Radiotherapy. It's 10.31 on Sunday morning with me, Dr Nick. We have Rainbow Doc. We have Misdiagnosis. And Prudence, dear, we've going, we're going from you talking about poppers and anal sex yeah. to erectile dysfunction. What is it with you this morning? I don't morning? know. I'm just, it's just one of those themes. It's, some, it's Sunday morning. What else can you think about? So, um, so tell me what brings this yeah, particular look, topic up. OK. Well, we're gonna, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that famous drug called Viagra. Yes. So the little blue pill. Um, and it's a bit of an anniversary for it, actually. Oh, and that's it? part of the reason. Yeah, cause Happy it was, birthday, Viagra. Yeah, well, it's kind of 21 years now since no. it was released. Oh, it 21 years. Yeah. They can vote. <laughs> And it's had a, you know, it's had a pretty good lifespan so far. And, and probably one of the issues, actually, and the reason this is sort of, you know, a bit more topical is that its patents are running out. And so uh, it's you know interesting pharmaceutical companies are because, as, as doctors, we're we're really encouraged to use the proper names for drugs. But yeah. Viagra would be one of those drugs where almost no doctor ever calls it sildenafil. Sildenafil. So I can't even most people wouldn't even know what that is. So yeah. yes, we all call it, but, but that is its proper chemical name. And look, it, it was such, you know, it's, it's, I mean, everybody. I mean, when I mention poppers, like, everyone looks blank and they don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think probably if you mention Viagra, everybody knows that, you know. My granny knows what Viagra is. Like, everybody's heard of it. It's just, it's, it's probably one of the most, you know, um, best-selling, most successful pharmaceutical products in the history. Yeah, so we've, um, we've had it for 21 years. 21 so, years. So why are we talking about it this morning? Well, What's exciting th about Viagra? Well, I mean, I think there's a number of things that is exciting about it, and the history is particularly interesting. I mean, talking about the success of it, in the first three months of 
its release, and it's a prescription drug, of course, as well. Um, the sales f- for it were like four hundred million dollars worth in the first three months, and wow. subs- and currently the annual sales of Viagra are one point eight billion dollars a year. Oh my God! There's some shares that I should have bought 21 yeah, years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And who? I, I don't have any figures for how many prescriptions and how many you know pills are actually being produced and released every year. But obviously, there's an awful lot, and it's amazing that you know that perhaps a topic that was hardly ever spoken about, erectile dysfunction (ED). Um, has become like sort of like a, a, a well certainly people are um, going to their doctors and talking about this because they know that there is apparently a treatment for it and um, it's almost quite fashionable I think it, it's, well, it's a, a it's fix it treatment isn't it well yes it is and I mean to a degree I guess we have to be aware of and that's probably why I'm going to talk about this for a little bit um, but, but, it's, it's, but it's an important point that isn't it because uh, uh, the same sort of thing happened when Prozac was produced the, the, yeah. the, the first of the the new generation antidepressants uh, back in the middle 90s I think it was, uh, it suddenly became more acceptable to go to a doctor because instead of having a mood disorder and something psychological I had a chemical imbalance for which a prescription could fix it and similarly with erectile dysfunction, yeah. being able to go to a doctor it's and get magic. a prescription suddenly makes it more acceptable. Magic drug, uh, absolutely magic drug. And, and the other aspect of its history that's quite interesting, of course, is actually comes down to like um, high blood pressure and you know cardiovascular stuff because that's what it was originally developed for. It was developed as a treatment for high blood pressure and also for angina. So it's kind of it links. <laughs> we link back to poppers and amyl nitrate, right? Um, but somehow I'm not well. When they started doing the clinical trials for Viagra, and they were presumably people's blood pressure and various other sorts of you know tests that they performed on them but you know but test subjects were reporting that they were also getting erections so, right. and somebody i guess somebody smart went whoa this is really interesting let's look at that so they they obviously did follow up and they found actually it was far more useful for dealing for treating erectile dysfunction than it is for treating hypertension and angina now that's interesting because uh, we've always been taught that viagra does not just give you an erection it has to be in conjunction with sexual stimulation so there must have been something about those trials that was turning people on <laughs> well you do wonder what people get up to or what they were reading at the time or what they were yes. watching on uh, on tv or something um but anyway so okay so that that really led to the you know the further sort of investigation of that as a, as a possible treatment and yeah I mean it's been shown obviously to be very effective um, that said you know the current sort of stats seem to show that about it, it really only works for about 70% of people presenting with erectile dysfunction and um, you know there are side effects as well um, and they include you know they're not really particularly serious ones as far as I'm aware but things like headaches and stomach pain and I mean if you're sort of looking forward to a night of passionate sex or something and you get a headache I mean that's not really the, it doesn't, not a very good mix. Mm. So um, they, um, I mean, what I've read is that um, people who are using it, up to 50% actually stop using it within 12 months. So it's not, the, you know, the, the absolute panacea. And um, as with many sorts of treatments like this, it, it doesn't work for everybody and it certainly doesn't work for people with fairly extensive pelvic nerve damage which I think would therefore actually probably be, for example, from people who might have had, you know, radical prostatectomies and had yes. bilateral nerve yeah. damage there, yeah. yeah. Um, 
We should probably also just remind people that because erectile dysfunction is more common with people who have vascular disease of one kind or another, and it might be on medications, there are interactions with there all are. sorts of cardiac drugs. So there it's not are. one of those drugs you can just take no matter what. It's, right. It is pretty safe. And here comes the warning. Okay, I'm please. glad you led in on that because actually you must not take Viagra and poppers at the same time because both will lower your blood pressure and you can have a catastrophic you know, fall in blood pressure that could be very unpleasant so yeah that's an, an important warning there so don't forget that one what concerns um, me about yeah. viagra yeah is speaking as the psychologist <laughs> yes and as a female bodied person too i should mm. say um is that the you know the psychological um stuff behind the ed the erectile mm. dysfunction is is just swept away yep. is not looked at and there are some really effective psychological treatments for erectile dysfunction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's been said, I'm sure, numerous times, but, you know, the, the, the sort of the biggest sex organ, sexual organ we have is our brains, right? So not our genitals. So it's, you know, what's going on for people at that time. But I think, you know, whether it's, you know, additional kind of social pressures and relationship pressures. And, I mean, uh, I've certainly heard, you know, of people who who take young people who take Viagra who really actually probably don't even need it but it becomes almost a recreational drug I mean it means you can keep going all night or something but the demands of performance um, possibly set by you know social standards by uh, pornography that's so you know ubiquitous now suggesting that you know you should be able to be at it you know for hours and hours and clearly Viagra would be one way to, to achieve that and in the interests of equality, I should mention that while we're talking about Viagra for particular reasons, there are other drugs, and since we're talking about drugs by name, Levitra and Cialis yeah. are the two other commonly used uh, erectile dysfunction drugs. So we're not ignoring you, Levitra and Cialis. No. It's just that this particular That's, story is about Viagra. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think actually because of it, it, it had such a monopoly for so long, yeah. that, that and, and, and it's got such a large part of the market share, that yes, some, some pharmaceutical companies have invested in alternative or, or similar types of products but actually probably there wasn't much drive for them to um, to invest in investment until probably now because the Viagra um, uh, patents are expiring so the generics will be there obviously but there's some opportunities to find some other other alternatives because um, for for people with erectile dysfunction, I mean, if it isn't Viagra that works, then there's some pretty horrible kind of other treatments, including you know injecting prostaglandins or something actually into the into the penis itself, which sounds grossly awful. But anyway, I suppose yeah, you might have to do it, and it does work. Um, so but it's not for everyone. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So particularly for people who've had prostate surgery and the nerves aren't working, sometimes the only way to get the blood into the right place, right place in the penis, is to take a syringe full of medication. And, yeah. and actually inject it into the penis, which sounds a point, but people do it and yeah. it works. Yeah. So uh, while it sounds it sounds extraordinary, it's actually a very effective treatment. But, but taking a pill is much easier to yeah. do, I think. And um, some recent, you know, there's been uh, research in in sort of areas and. Interestingly, I think again. Oh, in in areas to do with um, you know heart and circulatory issues, there is another drug that's been um, now being sort of looked at quite seriously, um, which is topically applied. So it's not a tablet; it's actually sprayed onto the skin, and it appears that um, this particular one, again, it was a kind of seems to be a coincidental finding by people who are partaking in the clinical trials, because they spray it on their skin. So some people have sprayed it on their penis, and they got an erection. 
Right. <laughs> what were they spraying it on for originally? Well, what they were spraying it on for this for, for cardiac issues. For again, oh, for, I've got a heart so problem. I've got a spray drug. Okay, Let's spray it on my willy. willy. Exactly. It's the obvious thing to do, isn't it? Exactly. And so there was a <laughs> chance observation that this may work as a topical, um, you know, um, apply to the skin. So, which would be, a, you know, probably, um, uh, probably less. You know, better side effect profile obviously just applying the drug to only to the area it needs to be used this is not another furniture cleaner of some kind no is it? no i believe shouldn't it's it called be sprayed on the, shouldn't it be sprayed on the brain isn't that the bit <laughs> well that needs you to would be? think so but obviously some you know you've got to get through the skull maybe that takes a bit more time um so yeah there is that opportunity i think that there are some and, and some of the benefits of, of this particular drug that's still in development, so you can't go out and buy it yet, but um, is that it works much quicker. One of the things we didn't mention was that, um, you know, Viagra can take up to an hour to work. So, so you know, you've got to plan ahead, you know. You're at, at, at the dessert course at dinner, you've taken your partner out, you know, it's going to be a big night. You sort of, do I take it now before dessert? We have coffee by the time we get home, it'll be about an hour. You well, know. you know, the, 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 the average time for... A female-bodied person to become aroused is about forty minutes. Okay, so if you're right. Kind of right. So you could so. actually call that pre-Viagra kicking in phase what used to be known as foreplay. <laughs> Part of it, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this 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 uh, this new um, this new sort of uh, treatment pr- works much quicker, like five minutes. So you know, if you're in a hurry, it might be a better option. So we'll see what. So happens. this is a spray-on erectile dysfunction drug, yeah. not yet available at your local bookshop, no, or your or local adult shop, adult or, shop. No. Right. or the butchers. But watch this space. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm actually interested. You said it's 21 years since Viagra was developed, and yet its patent has only just run out. Uh, I think they extend patents. Sometimes they get extra bits that they put on it. Yeah, because they? I thought patents only lasted for about seven years or something. That yeah. seems to be an extraordinarily they long time. They cleverly work it. I think so. That so just as one's expiring, they do another, but now they've kind of run out. Right. Perhaps we should say that uh, Prudence Deer is not sponsored by Viagra. No, not at all. And if I she no if she was, she's not going to be any more. <laughs> sold out to the, the competition. <laughs> or by any spray-on companies. Well, th- thank you for that. I look forward to an update, and perhaps we can hear we'll some more about that when it actually out. does yeah. become available. Radiotherapy here on Triple R with me, Dr. Nick. We have Rainbow Doc Prudence here and Misdiagnosis with panel beta twiddling the knobs and pressing the buttons. Um, and Misdiagnosis, uh, you've been thinking about sleep or particularly perhaps not sleeping. Tell me. I, I have been thinking quite a lot about sleep recently. I've um, had the pleasure of uh, attending a few clinics um, at one of the hospitals that are specialised sleep clinics. That's um, why you're not sleeping, because you're thinking about it. I'm thinking too much ah. about the sleep itself. Um, and it's been it's been fascinating. I've had a really, really interesting time there. Um, and I started thinking about this because they I was in clinic helping some people set up for some uh, some of the sleep studies and they had the um, the CPAP and BiPAP machines which are the um, continuous airway pressure machines that people use uh, at night time if they have some sleep issues sometimes and I said oh do you reckon you could put it on me and I could have a go um, so I, I got to sit in the sleep lab, um, which as a sort of, you know, young woman in mid-twenties is not something that you would normally do sort of putting the CPAP and BiPAP machines on unless you're very unlucky and you get very sick. Um, and that was really interesting to um, put those masks on and see what it's actually like for patients to um, have these contraptions over their face and this pressure sort of pushing into their lungs the entire time but and um, do you look like something like Darth Vader is it that kind of a big mask what's it like 
Well, so you used to look something more akin to Darth Vader, um, and uh, now it's it's not quite as bad as that now. And that's partly why I wanted to talk about it today because the masks are a lot smaller than they used to be. The machines, the machines themselves, you can carry around, not necessarily in your pocket, but um, certainly if you had a sort of mid-size backpack, you could pop one in there as well. Um, and so, so let, again, let's go back to the start. What are we actually talking about here? What what is sleep apnea, and why do people need to have positive airways pressure? So, so that's um, that's where we're going with this. So, essentially, um, sleep apnea is it's a condition where patients will have a partial or a complete obstruction of their upper airways during sleep. And what this results in is periods of reduced breathing, which results in periods of reduced oxygenation for the body itself. And the reason why we're so concerned about this is essentially these people overnight, especially if it's severe, they can stop breathing up to hundreds of times a night. And if you stop breathing for, and it can be from anywhere between sort of a couple of seconds to, you know, almost a full minute of not breathing at all, and they can drop what we call oxygen saturation, which is the level of oxygen in their body, quite dramatically to a level where if they presented to the emergency department with oxygen saturations of those kind of levels, we'd get very worried when we want to treat them. But it's overnight and often no one's, you know, no one's watching and, and they can have lots of deleterious health effects from this drop in oxygen overnight. So, so we're talking about people who snore heavily and then stop breathing or is it just snoring? What are, what are, what are we actually talking would be apparent to the other person in the room? Yeah, so snoring is a big part of it, but it's, it's not the only part of it and and certainly not not everybody snores the other thing is not everybody has a bed partner who hears them snore so there are sort of two factors with this it's there are people who snore very loudly and then they might stop breathing and sort of choke a little bit and wake up and often they only wake up for about three seconds or so so they might not remember and then they fall back asleep but realistically they're getting much less sleep than the average person overnight and they're also getting oxygen desaturation which and they're also getting oxygen may desaturation. Have harmful effects yeah and then there are some people who don't have or don't experience that sort of snoring or they don't have someone in the bed with them or in the room next to them uh when i was away last weekend i was uh, staying in an Airbnb and I woke up the next morning and my friend said, how do you sleep? And I said, I think the man in the apartment above me needs CPAP because, you know, the snoring was that loud that in the apartment below I could hear it. But unless you have someone who is telling you that you're snoring, you might not necessarily know. But there are a few um, other symptoms and things that you can look for. And it's interesting that we were talking about erectile dysfunction because that's one of them as well, that you can get a lot of sexual dysfunction, which is partly because you've got this really reduced oxygenation during the nighttime. Your body is exhausted and it's not not primed for you know a vigorous activity such as, such as sex the other symptoms is um, often people wake up and they experience this really really bad headache first thing in the morning and the alarm goes off and they feel really tired they've got this headache they often have a very dry mouth as well because they sort of their airways are being blocked they stop breathing um, and they can get very very fatigued during the daytime and the thing that I found that was so interesting about this is that people would come in and they'd say well you know yeah I've got a couple of kids and yeah sort of I snore a little bit I've put on a bit of weight and well I have a glass of wine before I go to bed but you know that's just that's normal right feeling this tired during the daytime and what I have witnessed some of the other doctors saying and what I've ended up saying to people is, well, if you compared this to five years ago 
is this level of fatigue what you'd expect? You know, has there been a change? Because the other thing that can be quite dramatic is a change in personality, that people can become very, very irritable and grumpy, which is because they're not sleeping and they don't realise. So you've mentioned the glass of wine, you've mentioned putting on weight. What are are the risk factors for this sleep apnea? So unfortunately, uh, being born in a male body is a risk factor, um, just by (laughs) nature of being a man. Um, It's not necessarily... Often people think it's obese patients that have sleep apnea, and certainly some of them do, but... Um, you can also be of a perfectly normal BMI and get sleep apnea as well just through um, risk factors such as having a larger neck, so people with a large neck circumference. So those people that find it really hard to do up the top button of their shirt often tend to have a sort of larger neck than average. And we're talking greater than sort of 40, 42 centimetres here. Oh, so we're talking the front row, front row forwards. <laughs> yeah, front um, And uh, other things like having really large tonsils. Uh, so if you've you know never had your tonsils out or if you've had... Um, problems with your tonsils or you might not even know that you've had any problems and what happens at night time is as we relax as we fall asleep all of those muscles that hold our airways really rigidly open they relax and if you've got you know big sort of floppy tonsils at the back there they can get in the way and they can obstruct uh, your upper airways your windpipe so you're talking about some fairly subtle symptoms sometimes so that people going to their doctor with things like feeling tired feeling moods a bit crabby erectile dysfunction it's not necessarily that doctors immediately begin to think about uh, sleep apnea as a cause for this do we know how common that sleep apnea actually is well it's actually terrifyingly common so mm. i was having a look at a 2015 uh, research paper that was published in the uh, lancet respiratory medicine and in that particular paper they said up to 50 percent of men have some degree of sort of moderate um, to mild sleep apnea. Whoa. Yeah. 50%. And 25% of women. And the other reason why this sort of was uh, came on my mind is I was um, I watched the uh, a critically acclaimed Netflix um, comedy Wine Country, which... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in this particular uh, film, one of the characters is on a sleep CPAP machine overnight and she actually ends up picking up while wearing her CPAP machine. So I think we're sort of moving towards... Gee, that's a good pick-up. Yeah, <laughs> we're moving towards destigmatizing it. And it also shows you, you know, you watch that film and the CPAP machine, It's that's the size it is now. It's not huge, it's not terrifying. And Amy Poehler does manage to pick up while she's wearing it anyway. So I, I hope that this can in some ways encourage people to um, not be so afraid of the machines themselves because there's a lot of reluctance to begin or start using CPAP because it does seem like this you know this sort of huge exhaust pipe or something in your room that people get very worried about there would be one way of changing that i reckon i was i was thinking about proposing you know posing an ethical question here around snoring because you said you you know you're at an airbnb and there was someone above you who was snoring which interfered with your sleep so do you think you should need to declare that you're a snorer when you're in when you are checking in for accommodation oh. or in a plane you know that's a 24 where people are going to be sleeping that you're snoring do you think you should need to declare that you snore and have to pay extra maybe because you're interfering with other people's experience of travelling or sleeping. You know, Special padded you, rooms for the snorers. Can you get a refund if you're... Well, you can't, can you? If you just happen, as you were in the Airbnb, there's people snoring. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Treading if, on dangerous territory here, Rainbow. Well, I know, I know. But, you know, maybe this is a way of persuading people to do something about it and get the... 
get get something to help them with the snoring so that they don't have to pay the snorer's levy. <laughs> the snorer's I, I don't, levy. I don't know. I think this would also assume that people are aware of how much they snore as well because I, I've, you know, certainly been in situations where people have... I've shared rooms with friends on holidays and, and you kind of go, oh, my God, you snore so badly. And no-one's ever told them before. So if you snore in a bed with no-one else there, do you really have sleep apnea? <laughs> well, it depends how much of a headache you have in the morning. But, one of the, but it is actually a serious problem, isn't it? Because um, one of the things we've been aware in the medical profession is... Quite a lot of people with these symptoms we're talking about, and it can be as banal as high blood pressure, uh, and they have no idea that they have sleep apnea, but actually one of the big contributors to their problem is a sleep problem they weren't even aware of. So that being, for people out there who are listening, it is well worth thinking about if you have some of these niggly things, whether it's daytime tiredness, crabbiness, things have changed, your partner saying you're snoring a lot, your erectile dysfunction, high blood pressure, it is worth nudging your doctor to say, should I have a sleep study? Um, and sleep studies, they're, they're quite a complicated thing to do. You don't do it at a drop of a hat. I, I did one once as part of a TV program and they wired me up um, and <laughs> I actually fell asleep on camera <laughs> while having a sleep study in the middle of the day, which is perhaps because I have sleep apnea, who knows, don't sleep well. Uh, but a sleep study is a fairly simple, fairly cheap thing to do, but uh, can be a very important investigation. It might be cheaper than the snorer's levy. <laughs> it certainly might. Um, well, th- thank you, Miss Diagnosis. That's a, that's a timely reminder about the importance of sleep, about uh, the fact that this particular problem, sleep apnea, is, is maybe more common than, certainly more common than I realised. I had no idea that 50% was the, the kind of level. I'm, I'm slightly dismayed as well that being a bloke is a risk factor on its own, but there, I'll have to... It's a risk factor for a lot of things. Yeah, it is, isn't it? There we are. Anyway, um, <laughs> time is nearly up. Yeah, you've, you've been, we just have time to say thanks to our expert panellists. We have Prudence Deer, Rainbow Doc, Misdiagnosis. Thank you very much for your input this morning. Uh, we've had on the panel, looking after us, Panel Beta. Thank you very much for doing all your help. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can always check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime uh, with Triple R Radio On Demand. And you can always download the podcast so you can listen to us again and again and again. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.